Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arnevenheim, futurist, author, investor, and serial entrepreneur. Join me as I discuss the societal deep impact of AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship trends and the future of work. And on the show, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, and even the occasional celebrity. In episode 150 of the podcast, the topic is Rogue Waves of Change, and our guest is Jonathan Brill, futurist and author. In this conversation, we talk about doing the work of a futurist from HP to Hollywood, the ABCs of resilient growth, awareness, behavior change, and culture change, and the techniques and tools at your disposal to do so. How can you transform your company into a more resilient and adaptable organization? Explore the new course Scale OS from Smolik Enterprises. You will work with award-winning CEO Stephanie Malik to scale your business, tapping into surprising sources of revenue. Get 10% off Scale OS with code Futurized. Just go to futurized.org/sponsors and find Smolik Enterprises. If you wonder who she is, I know I did. Listen to How Executives Handle Crisis at futurized.org/129. What Stephanie has learned through a tough life, emotional stamina, and business acumen, she is teaching you in an accelerated fashion. If you are interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by the host of this podcast, including how to book him for keynote speeches, please go to futurize.org store, and we will consider all brands that have a demonstrably positive contribution to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurized.org. Thanks so much. Let's begin. Jonathan, how are you? Wonderful, wonderful. It's wonderful to see you and hear you, Trond. Yes, because, Jonathan Brill, we are going to cover some interesting ground here. I want to just start with this. How did you go from designer to futurist? That's, that's just a, interesting. That's a great question. Um, so... I didn't plan to be a futurist. In fact, I got a phone call from HP, the computer company uh, and, and printer company asking uh, if I would leave my business, which was running uh, contract research and development programs to help them think about what their organization should be five or 10 years from now. And um, I walked in and I got my business card and my job title said futurist on it. <laughs> <laughs> so that is how I became a futurist. But the way I think about uh, the future, the way I think about tomorrow, is really, you know, on uh, is is an inventor as as a designer, as an engineer. Uh, what can we make when? What is blocking us from doing that? And what are the small innovations? What are the small combination of levers that we can unlock to create human potential, to create business potential? And so I think a lot of futurists, they look at kind of big picture stuff and, you know, how do we create, what does things look like in a world of flying cars? I think a lot about that and, and how, what could the future be? What are the limits of human potential? But then I tie it back down to what are the decisions we need to make today to make tomorrow possible? You know, you and I talked for a few seconds just before I clicked record, and we were talking about, I guess, uh, a bunch of things. But uh, but also, you know, whether creating the future is simple or difficult, and and that's, I mean, that's in, in itself an interesting question, isn't it? Because as you pointed out, you know, you can sort of make make it as difficult as you want, but at the end of the day, some of the things uh, that you that have been created have been uh, remarkably simple or they can be explained in a remarkably simple way. I wanted to relate this a little bit to what your day job seems to be now. You are a futurist in residence at Territory Studio. So these guys uh, are, are kind of the creative powerhouses behind sci-fi movies and stuff. So you've done a, a lot of work with visual uh, explanations as well. That That's correct. I think until you have two things, one, a story about what the future will be like, and second, a visualization of what that experience is. 
the future won't necessarily happen, especially from a product viewpoint. So I worked on Microsoft Surface, which was the first large multi-touch computer project. And what was interesting about it to me was that it got adoption in two places. And those were the two places where we built high fidelity prototypes of what those types of product experiences would be. And, um, you know, and the economics worked and so on and so forth. But I've come to this conclusion that Hollywood in so many ways drives what we think the future will be. You take a look at the metaverse conversation right now well what what really happened minority report happened and ready player one happened and so people think that's what 3d data looks like in the future the applications and the use cases will be radically different than that in terms of the things that really drive economic value but that's the thing i'm so glad you said that because it's such an interesting discussion the metaverse um and i do believe hollywood employs smart people like yourself, to come up with scenarios, but they're not the only scenarios. They employ us to come up with scenarios that drive stories forward. And so there's a difference between the things that look cool on film that drive stories forward and the real future. So an example, I was at the MIT Media Lab and we were doing work in the early 2000s on machine vision uh, and gestural interfaces and and, um, uh, human pose estimation, which is super geeky way to say minority report. I spent four or five years saying we're making this thing and it's got all of these technical competent characteristics to it. And then minority report comes out and all anybody wants is for us to do that, but they want us for, for us to do it on giant, wall-sized TV screens uh, that are transparent because that's what they saw in the movie. There are any number of reasons why giant wall-sized touchscreen computers are really dumb um, from a human physiology standpoint, just standing there with your arms, you know, above, above your shoulders. That's actually uh, a stress position. That's actually considered torture by the United Nations or the, by the, uh, whatever the, the, the human rights covenant is, right? Like that's a terrible idea. Um, and see-through displays. Well, how do you have reliable contrast ratios so that you can actually see the text or the picture or the whatever, on the display if sometimes there's like headlights behind it. And so these things that make sense on film because they drive the story forward, you have a transparent display, you know, you can see the character's face, the actor's face, you can see the visual on the display and you can see the camera and the camera can push through both. That's a really good as a storytelling mechanism, not so good in reality. You know, do you think sometimes that, uh, in that way, Hollywood sometimes makes the life of a futurist more difficult because you're forced <clears throat> to play on that very large canvas, the larger-than-life canvas, which is more than story, right? It is actually, you know, it is so fictionalized. Uh, so that forces anybody who tries to talk about what 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 they see happening to to either just not relate to that at all and sort of say that you know that's not what I do, or you're sort of forced into that language and even the visual canvas that that movies produce, or or do you, are you more optimistic? Because I I tend to think that a lot of these things just they're very stimulating. I've I've interviewed a lot of entrepreneurs and on engineers who are very stimulated by this. I think it's sci-fi a- and generally. I think it's a two-sided conversation, right? Would would, um, lasers, one of the foundational technologies of our modern society, it's how we push data for for internet data around the world using lasers, CD players, uh, you know, uh, you couldn't make modern computer chips without lasers. It's a foundational technology to human life. Why did it come into existence? Because somebody saw, you know, or heard or read uh, The War of the Worlds, H.G. Wells' the War, War of the Worlds, and thought, hey, heat rays, that's a thing. I could make that, right? So, yeah. so these are interrelated concepts. I think that the question is, you know, what's the value proposition that's being expressed? 
And then how do you express it? Right. We were talking offline about Elon Musk and humanoid robots, and he's going to make humanoid robots. And that not that crazy? Well, why don't we have humanoid robots today? There are lots of reasons, but the biggest ones are one battery power. And the second, the cost of electric motors. If you think about all of the joints in your body, I think there are 27 of them. I'm making that up off the cuff, but I think that's right. Uh, major joints in your body. You know, well, if each of those has to be a motor and motors are expensive, that's a problem. But if you are the kind of company that, that buys engineers increasingly specs and maybe manufactures electric motors and you're a major buyer of uh, uh, high capacity batteries and battery and an expert in battery engineering. And by the way, also an expert in artificial intelligence and machine vision systems. Well, all of a sudden that actually starts to make a lot of sense, right? So what he's doing what, what Elon Musk is doing, what, what, what he's thinking about, isn't just how do we create sci-fi. It's what are my core competencies? What are the timelines for these technologies? How do they come together to create a value proposition? And even if we don't build a full humanoid robot, you know, what about an upper body or what about a more complex articulating arm? You know, what's the value of that? What, what's the value of creating a robot that's, that's safe enough around people that you don't need to put security cages around it, which is what you do oftentimes in factories today, because otherwise the, the, the robot will come and clock someone's head off. You know, yeah, these are I mean, things, it's, these it are is striking. It's striking how possible it is to change the world even these days. I'm, I'm actually really, that makes me really happy. When I was little, Jonathan, I sort of started thinking at some point, reading about all these heroes. You know, mm -hmm. in, in growing up in Norway, the heroes, of course, were polar explorers. Yeah. They were also scientists, but you know, you know, those were the highest on the on the list. And I kind of was depressed for a while, thinking, you know, someone already, you know, walked uh, across the North Pole and you know discovered the South Pole. Like, what am I going to do? There's nothing left. But it turns out, of course, with a little bit of creativity. There are so many mountains to climb and so many, uh, you know, technologies to invent or, or even just be involved in. Um, but you speak about value a lot, Jonathan. And, and I guess that for someone who has been employed a lot by corporate uh, functions, that, that is important. So you spent a lot of time at HP doing futurist work. What, how, how does that even enter into the picture at a company like HP? Is a futurist even a title there? So this is a great question. I um, I spent many years uh, running product innovation firms, as uh, we talked about earlier. And I was brought in as the, the company broke into two to help make sure that the new organization, which was highly performance-driven, you know, it gives a large dividend, so they've got to hit the quarter and so on and so forth, um, was orienting themselves for the future. And when you're Elon Musk and you're Tesla or Google, you, know, you can say, okay, the future's over there. I'm going to go after it. I don't care about shareholders. I don't care about my quarterly earnings. Most companies aren't Jeff Bezos. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and they don't have the right to do whatever the heck they want to do um, as long as they grow. Most companies are much more like HP, especially large ones. And so the question wasn't, how do we just find a new North Star, a new future, and, and say, we're going to make flying cars? It's, it was, how do we make small decisions over time that reorient the company toward new growth uh, and are acceptable to, to shareholders, don't disrupt the system? And over the course of time, we, we re-architected the firm. Uh, unfortunately, about 16% of the workforce was let go to free up capital and free up operations to do these new things that, that uh, some of them have been announced, uh, a 3D printing business that's best in class, it's doing really well in the marketplace. Uh, and it's not just doing like one-off little 3D printing things for engineers, it's massive industrial scale 3D printing for car companies and things like that. And then the second, which I can't talk too much about, uh, is a smart diagnostics business, 
where we were looking at healthcare diagnostics. And I think this is a really interesting idea um, about how you can think about the future differently. The reasons we moved into that business, there were two major reasons. One is if you take a look at demographics, right? And uh, uh, Norway and the United States and, and I think all of the G20 countries, the 20 largest economies, populations are getting older. And that means that you're going to have a lot more people having health problems. And that means you're going to need a lot more diagnostics and you're going to need to figure out how to get from, uh, from symptom to solution far faster. And so we looked at this healthcare diagnostics business and we said, hey, this is a thing that would be successful just because of that. But what are the potential amplifiers? What are the potential hockey sticks of interest for this kind of business? And we looked at uh, zoonotic respiratory pandemics as one of them. And we said, hey, you know, we don't know that this is going to happen. Or we do know this is going to happen. We don't know when, but we know that the probability is growing radically. And that what had been happening when you kind of look three layers down at all of the details was we'd gotten better at stopping 100-year pandemics, but they were happening far more frequently. And so we said, okay, here's an opportunity where we know that we're going to have reliable growth for our customers that want the reliable growth. But there's a hockey stick moment in here where that opportunity may grow exponentially. And I think that's how you want to look uh, at the future is, is what are the details? What do you know that allow you to make a good bet? And what do you not know that could allow you to make a far better bet? Well, and, and I'd also orient futurism in the corporate sense uh, a little bit away from, like you said, the shiny object in some unknown future, because that's a little bit to cheat with futurism, right? Because as we started talking about, you know, Hollywood doesn't have to be so concerned about realistic timelines. They just pick a year, 20, 30 years into the future and say, well, the movie, you know, or this part of the movie is happening in the future. Well, when you're a corporation... The future could be just next year, right? Because if your share price goes down too far, then there is no future. Uh, so, so that does actually, the timelines are very, very important to, to a corporation. Um, I'm curious. So you are out with a book this year, Rogue Waves, which builds, uh, I'm imagining, uh, quite a bit on your experience at, at HP. And some of the things you're saying there is, they have to do with resilience more than with these creative ideas about finding even scenarios for a future. So you're navigating really product growth. And then because you're doing that in a certain way that is open-ended enough, I guess, that you're looking at various possibilities when things happen, which you say in your book, things happen all the time. You, 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 know, you, you can't navigate your way around all these problems. Mm -hmm. These external shocks will happen, but it is what you have prepared for. I guess it's sort of like your training, essentially, that can make the difference. Tell us a little bit about these rogue waves, why they happen, but more importantly, how you, uh, as a sort of a salient, sort of quietly innovating company, can start to identify these early enough that even if you are as shocked by them as anyone else, because you know who wasn't shocked by the scale of this particular pandemic, you you can at least survive, turn around, make the most of it, and maybe even make a, you know great value in in, in you know in the, in the midst of a rogue wave. So let's take a step back. Uh, and look at the last couple of decades of business growth. Uh, <clears throat> there's a thing called total shareholder return, TSR. And it's, you know, for every dollar I put in, how much money do I get out? Um, and uh, about 4% of companies and, and the New York Stock Exchange actually deliver value over time. Most companies actually have negative TSR, which is fascinating. But the more interesting thing over the last couple of decades or certainly last 15 years is that the, the time at which you have above average TSR above average total shareholder return has been shrinking. 
And so the question that I have is how do you create outsized performance in a world where differentiation is decreasing? And I think I have an answer to the question. It's not one that the kind of traditional management theory would like, but I think it's a good one, which is for the last 40 years, uh, volatility, the amount of unknown exogenous shocks has been decreasing, right? We, we had the end of the Cold War, the digital revolution, information revolution made things more reliable, so on and so forth. And we've been designing our organizations, assuming that the world will continue to be less volatile. But I don't know if you've noticed the last couple of years, I think the world's getting more volatile geopolitically, U.S.-China tension. Uh, uh, nationally, you see rising income disparity around the world. Uh, in, in San Francisco, before COVID, the income disparity was the same as uh, Chile's was in 2019 when uh, riots broke out and they had to actually rewrite the constitution. And now they're really deciding whether they're going to go toward a far right or a far left president for this is the first uh, president under this new constitution. Right, these things are radical. These changes are radical. Uh, when you take a look at the population inversion, you know what you see is that the um, in, in a country like the United States, where almost uh, something like seventy percent of the economy is consumption, as people get older, they spend less. As people stop working, they spend less, and they cost more, right? Because of those social services, because of healthcare, and most of that uh, is is government covered. It's not privately covered. So, so you're we're moving into this much more stressful world where, where growth is going to be harder, but more volatile. And so in that world, how do you grow? You grow by leaning into the volatility. When you have what uh, economists call structural breaks occur, you, you take advantage of them. And companies that are designed to take advantage of those disruptions, they, they tend to do better in the downturn. But more importantly, in the upturn, they tend to uh, keep that growth. They tend to hold on to that growth. And so if you want to be a successful company in the next decade, and you believe what I just said, I recommend that we stop focusing on growth and we start focusing on what I call resilient growth. And there are really three ways, uh, three steps to, to doing this. The first is awareness. We've taught our people to, to keep their nose to the grindstone. You know, your, your, your job is to run this operation. The only problem with that is the second the external environment changes, you know, running the car faster will just hit the make you hit the brick wall faster, right? So you got to get people looking outside the organization, looking at the range of possible futures. And in the book, we talk about 10 major trends over the next decade that are going to inevitably collide to create the next rogue wave. Uh, no matter what the seed event is, whether it's COVID, whether it's a geopolitical tension, whether it's a, a meteor uh, hitting the planet, wh whenever that happens, these, these 10 trends will collide to shape the outcome. I was just curious on this first one. Um, is this still one where you think the role of an individual futurist or, or one part of an organization can entirely and on its own provide that sort of awareness layer or is this something already where the whole organization has to be involved in this awareness business what we did at one moment what what we did at hp was build a group called hp pioneers and the role of this group was to make sure that insights on the edge of the organization were coming into the core and the reasons for decision making at the core that external sensing was filtering back out to the edge. And so I highly recommend no matter how large an organization or how small you are, that you have some kind of mechanism like that at HP, you know, spending a few million dollars a year for a small group of, of specialists to do this stuff, not a big issue in a $60 billion company. I totally understand for most companies, maybe you don't want to have like economists on staff looking at this stuff, but what you can do is take a more structured look because the issue typically isn't something out of the ordinary that, that, that impacts you. It's the, it's the rogue wave. And, and what is a rogue wave? 
when you think about the things that really disrupt companies that really disrupt society, it's not any individual thing. It's not, you know, emerging technologies. It's not changing demographics. It's not geopolitical tension. It's the overlap of social, economic, and technological trends that, that collide to create this larger unmanageable event to create this rogue wave. And so what you want to do is get people thinking about what would be the impact of a range of scenarios, uh, on your organization, on, on your finances, on your operations, on your external environment, and on your strategy, on things like demand generation. And what small changes do you need to make to become more resilient than your competition to be able to pivot when those uh, events occur? Hmm. And we talk about this extensively in the book, and it's really a set of frameworks for, for doing this kind of thinking in your organization. And it applies equally to a fortune 50 company like HP or to my friend's family farm. Both had banner years in the face of COVID when, you know, honestly, uh, they should have sunk. Can I ask you something about this, Jonathan? Because a lot of times when people talk about scenarios or thinking in this way with, you know, an eye towards awareness, organizations still end up preparing for the past crisis. And if you look at the pandemics, which I have studied in some detail, I, you know, I had a book out on the pandemic, you know, two months into the pandemic. And one of the things that I looked at was every pandemic scenario that was ever published or known about. And there were a few of them. There were about 10, 10, 10 to 12 of them that were of any no, no, notable mm -hmm. uh, nature. But the problem was many of them were just developed by a small group, or mm -hmm. even if they were pretty smart scenarios, mm -hmm. the consequence of them seems to have been that a small group of people started thinking, oh, we're going to prepare for that. And that was a very limited conclusion in one of these scenarios of usually in this case leading to, okay, there will be a pandemic, there will be an influenza-like uh, you know, uh, epidemic, and, and we're going to do that. Or there will be some sort of, uh, you know, Ebola-like crazy, crazy, very deadly disease, and we're going to have to shut it down. So there yeah. were those two extremes. None of the scenarios, even if in some of the scenarios, this option that there could be this insidious disease that was at the same time both quite, you know, infectious and somewhat deadly, but mm -hmm. not crazy deadly, there, there was that that option was in many of those scenarios, but mm -hmm. it was never what people focused on. So the decision makers, the conclusions came out to be, yeah, 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 let's prepare for the pandemic. Let's do this one thing. And then everybody did this one thing. How do you, when you're thinking about crisis, not prepared for the past crisis? Mm -hmm. So I, as I said, I, I think the, the question is really how could a broad range of crises impact you? So uh, I deal with a lot of highly practical, operationally focused people, right? And so the first response is, oh, that's cute. You're a futurist. You can't predict the future. That's, and my, my argument is, okay, sure, that's, that's fine. Uh, can we agree that you can predict the past? Because it's already happened. So let's take a look at what you're planning to do and uh, can we agree that the world moves faster today than it did in 1900 or 1910 or 1920? Hmm. Can we do that? I, I mean, you're going to have a hard time arguing against that. And then I ask, okay, is your organization ready? Is your strategy ready? Are your operations ready for the world from 1900 to 1910? Oh, you don't think that's a realistic scenario? What about 1920 to 1930? Or what about 1960 to 1970? Because what you want to do is figure out how to create an organization that's resilient and able to lean in no matter what happens. Mm -hmm. When you take a look at a company like a company like Amazon, it's really easy to look at them and say, yeah, they've got lots of money. Yes, their shareholders give them room to run. Uh, yes, they've got the smartest people. All of those things may or may not be true. I happen to think they are in that case. But my question is, if I waved a magic wand at your company and said, the opportunity of a century is in front of you, 
all of those problems have gone away. Could you build, not buy, could you build an organization the size of the Ford Motor Company in 90 days to dominate the retail industry? Because that's what Amazon did. And it wasn't a result of the smartest people, and it wasn't a result of the most money, and it wasn't a result of the best technology. It was the result of a mindset. They didn't well, have... This is the mystery oh. of startup innovation, right, Jonathan? It, it, yeah. it, it defies explanation in a certain sense, because if you look at the resource level that is deployed, it, there, there's just no comparison. Is that where we get to your, your the second part of this framework? Because behaviors is, I, I believe, something that you're really interested in. Um, Absolutely. I think there are, if you want to look at the future, and, and we could certainly debate plus or minus 10%, I think there are five uh, behavioral competencies that you need on teams. And uh, it's not necessary for everybody to have mastery at all of all five of them. But what I often see is that you end up with a team of finance people who got degrees in business and finance or economics or a team of uh, legal people who got degrees in legal and whatever. And so they, they gain mastery of one competency, one of the five competencies for looking at the future, maybe two, but they're blind to the fact that there are all of these other skill sets that can increase their ability to make decisions on under uncertainty, un, excuse me, under uncertainty to innovate under un, uncertainty. So what are those five uh, skills and, and do you have them in your organization? If not, where do you get them? First is reality testing, right? So if you look at a quantitative social scientist, right? Someone who deals with soft stuff, but has to have soft sciences, but has to figure out quantitatively what's going on, what's the baseline. They gain a lot of these skills in reality testing. If you're an English major, you probably don't. Uh, observing systems. If you're an economist, this is what you learn how to do, stock flow analysis or, or figuring out how to model complexity and, and look at the range of possible outcomes. Uh, if you're a lawyer, that's not really what you do. Uh, generating the range of possible futures, right? Thinking about, okay, well, what would happen if one thing we know to be true turns out to not be true, or what would happen if one rule changed? You know, what, what would be the impact? Um, and that's really what happened with COVID, right? We, we, if you looked at the system, we knew what the impact of, uh, of, of shutting down the economy and a massive shutter of, of an increasingly globalized just-in-time economy would be. Um, we just didn't think about what the cause would be. When you take a look at eight of the 10 largest companies, publicly held companies in America, uh, only two identified uh, pandemics as a threat in their SEC risk filings in their, in their 10Ks. Uh, one of those was Apple, who thought, hey, you know, our supply chains might get a little janky. Didn't think about the impact, the upside impact on their notebook business. Didn't think about the impact on shutting down all of their real the retail stores for months. Um, the other was uh, CVS Aetna, now called CVS Health, uh, which is a massive uh, insurance company. So obviously they were thinking about the, <laughs> the economic issue. My, my point is most organizations weren't thinking truly about the, the range of possible experiences that they had not had in their professional lives. You know, the managers weren't thinking about that. Well, and that's interesting because for me, that goes back to to why you probably are a great futurist, because you think in terms of designing experiences. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things when I've studied all these pandemic or other scenarios that mm -hmm. exist for for any number of you know phenomena, mm -hmm. may, maybe also for emerging technologies, mm -hmm. the challenge in many of these exercises, if you look at it, and I've been part of some of them and, and try to design, I've also just been participant in a, in scenario workshops. If you don't have, or you, you don't have people who help you craft scenarios and start to really deeply, deeply imagine what actually a possible future truly would look like. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're just going through the exercise. You can create all of these possible worlds and they can be fictionalized and they can have all these fancy names. 
but you're actually not going to the heart of the matter. You're not actually describing an experience that could happen, mm-hmm. right? So, so that seem the, the that part resonates a lot with me. The mm-hmm. the fact that you need to tie any discussion about the future into a very tight understanding of what of what how the experience of that future would change. And and it needs to. I believe it often needs to be visceral in some way. So earlier we were talking about the impact of Minority Report on on my early career, and all of a sudden, all I'm doing for for five years is making giant wall size computers. Um, the second people have a vision of the future, that's what becomes that. That's what they can make real, or that's what they can respond to. Um, if it's accurate, but not of the right fidelity, you can also have a problem. So we worked with Sony in the early 2000 and 99, 2000, 2001, I believe, uh, to design a museum that, that expressed the future of technology, what would happen over the next decade. And we engineered, we designed all of the experiential elements of what the iPhone and, and, you know, three and a half G wireless network ecosystem would be like, and how you would share data, how you would uh, create your own content, how you co-create content, the, the impact of, of, of things like Microsoft connect. We, we designed a, a thing like that. Back in 2000, and, and, and over a course of 10 years, they built this thing. And yet Sony, a company that had the music rights, that was a top player in notebook computers, that was a top player in mobile phones, somehow, because we didn't tie it to a mobile phone, somehow that reality wasn't real enough because we tied it to a plastic card instead that, that you could take around and swipe and have these different experiences. We, we didn't tie it to a, a, an electronic object. My point is they had all of the information to win the game, and yet they lost because hmm. the fidelity wasn't there. It wasn't right. Um, but Jonathan, the fidelity, isn't that also well, a, a whole other factor in futurist craft is timing because I, I think another like we must have had a lot of these super quick discussions in the first three minutes before we started recording but I recall we were talking about this timing issue and you can say all you want about the future and you you made the point that it will all be true and and I guess that's the advantage in some way of, of being a loose futurist you can kind of cut yourself loose and, and speculate and as long as you don't give a timeline, so forget the risk aspect or the other things that you know is in your framework there. There is no risk for you and, uh, unless you tie it down to the cell phone will be relevant at this particular moment if X, Y, and Z happens. Mm-hmm. And, and yet that was a known that 3.5G was going to be the break-even for, for smartphone types of technologies. So, so I don't. So in I that case, it was known. But I, I'm just I, saying, I it is a cheap way out for many futurists if oh, you it, refuse to give any timelines. It it absolutely was. But I happen to know, and and Mark Johnson uh, describes it in his book, um, uh, is it Future Back or, um, anyways, Mark Johnson's actually uh, in a site, his excellent book. Uh, he talks about exactly in that sort of 2000 to 2001 time period, uh, the the long-term strat- strategic planning that was happening at Apple at that point, right? So this was known, this was knowable, the vision was knowable, the timelines were knowable, and yet the execution didn't happen. Was this dual transformation or lead from the future? I believe lead, there's two. Lead from the future, yeah. Scott, right. Scott Anthony is dual transformation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, okay, so so we're we're then in the second aspect. So awareness is one, and two is behavior change, and and you you manage to fit rogue in there. So this entire rogue framework is yes. embedded in behavior change. a rogue change. within a rogue within a rogue. It's it's like I'm a consultant, and you need acronyms, right? So yeah, no, uh, but it was, it's it was impressive. It was impressive. <laughs> so so we got we got to uh, reality testing, observing systems, generating the range of possible futures. 
uncoupling threats from opportunities. So this is what mechanical engineers are trained to do, right? If you have a machine and, and one, one gear is running faster than the other, the whole machine blows up, right? Um, and that's why so many mechanical engineers end up being really good program managers. They're, they're, they're skilled at uncoupling threats and opportunities. Um, and then the last piece is experimenting in portfolios. And so, you know, computer scientists are trained to do this. Uh, some types of particularly pharmaceutical life sciences re researchers are trained to do this. Uh, and weirdly, investment analysts are trained to do this. How do you look at a portfolio so that you have the right combination of high growth, high risk opportunities, mid growth, typically mid risk opportunities, insurance opportunities that will pay off at the, and this is the key thing we were talking about timing that will pay off at the right timelines so that no matter what happens, you win. And so when you take a look at someone like Nassim Taleb, who wrote a book called the black swan, you know, he talks about uh, this, this concept called barbell strategy or dumbbell strategy where you, you say, okay, well, we're going to make a couple of insane bets, right? We're going to, we're going to go and we're going to, builds robotic humans. Uh, we're going to make a number of relatively rational bets. In this case, in Elon Musk's perspective, we're going to continue firing up robots and we're going to, or uh, spaceships, and we're going to continue uh, trying to, to put small satellites into the atmosphere and build a communications network. That's a relatively low risk thing for him to do that will scale. Uh, and then you have insurance bets, right? So he's got, uh, maybe at his scale, you don't do this anymore, but normally you have a large percentage of your capital in stuff that'll just give you flexibility in case everything goes to pot. So in, as an individual, that might be, uh, in, you know, buying city bond, municipal bonds or something, right? Where you're just going to get your reliable 4% return or whatever you're, uh, that'll keep you going through the downtimes. And anyways, when you think about experimenting, you know, what do you see in so many companies, uh, General Motors being an example, you know, you make a better car, better car, better car, better car, better car, better car. And then you make an electric vehicle that goes 150,000 miles without a tune-up that blows up your entire business model, which is a huge problem. And then because over a hundred years, you've really made one bet. You get to today, and all hundred and forty thousand of those electric vehicles you've built uh, get recalled because the the, the batteries uh, have a problem and they catch fire. Well, who's going to buy a new General Motors electric vehicle tomorrow? I'm not buying a Hummer. I don't know about you. Yeah, I um, I think portfolio thinking is is um, powerful. It is powerful. And then the last one for you. Uh, so there's three. That was another wonderful, uh, you know, uh, framework letter here, ABCs. But the C there is, uh, I, I mean, for me, it's tied to behavior change. But uh, but you're, you're thinking about it more as a collective phenomenon. I, I think that if you... You know, you can invest in awareness building. I see this in learning devel in development all the time. You invest in awareness building. Everyone knows what's what the future is going to be, what's wrong, why they've got to change. You invest in increasing critical thinking skills or whatever it is in your company, but you don't change the culture. You don't change the incentives and the processes by which people are rewarded. And so, why are they going to implement any of those things when they know that the game for them? hasn't changed. It might have changed for the company. <laughs> you might have improved their future career prospects, but you haven't changed their game. And so you need to think about, you know, what are those incentives uh, that will encourage people to experiment in portfolios, to think about uh, both the long-term and the medium-term and not give up long-term opportunity, you know, for the quarter. The second you start doing that, that's how you get yourself into the situation HP was in where, you know, analysts are, are, are saying you're off by one, you know, one cent or two cents this quarter. You know, we're going to ding your stock by 15 or 20%. Hmm. You know, you got, you got to get people thinking about how do you stop, 
you know, giving up future growth, future opportunity, future optionality. And as you do that, and like, like I said, it's, it's, it's a hard balance as a company that's coming out, you know, moving from, from one phase to the other, uh, you've got to do that. And you, you, you do that by doing some really weird things, right? Um, encouraging people to innovate, even though you know they're going to fail. And then when they fail, rewarding them. That's crazy. I know. But if you don't do that, you know, you, you end up, you know, leading a pack of lemmings in a, instead of a pack of lions. Hmm. Right. They're going to, they're, they're going to do what they know will win. They're going to, they're going to do high school science fair experiments instead of things that could change your company. Well, and this is a great point, right? Because these are kind of abstract things. And if you keep them very simple, you know, awareness, that's, you know, there's a playbook for that and behavior change. Okay. Everyone wants to have employees that, you know, can change and then culture change well we all know organizational culture yeah we have one we've got to have a better one we you know we're working on it all the time everybody will say that they're doing these things but i guess mm -hmm. the devil is in the detail here it's it is and i think that the big detail is around that behavior change thing making sure that you have teams with all of the competencies that they need to actually make decisions about the future otherwise they'll make decisions about what they know the second so Jonathan, I saved I saved my best question for last, and uh -oh. hopefully uh, it's an easy <laughs> uh -oh. question for you. <laughs> so, looking at the next decade, what do you think will happen to the things that you care about and have described in terms of how a corporation, uh, you know, needs to respond to the emerging future, and and what sort of emerging future do you envision? How different will ten years? Uh, what kind of a difference will 10 years make? And maybe let's go back to your example of 1910 to 1920 or 1930 to 1940. So, you know, it, the world hasn't always had, you know, even change over a decade. But if you look, if you average this out and you look at the last century and what sort of what happened between decades, uh, obviously it depends on which sector you're talking about, you know, exactly what happened. But if you're looking at a 10-year change right now at this moment, mm -hmm. what do you think, what are the vectors, what are the things that a corporation needs to be looking out for and um, putting into the frameworks and the ideas that they stimulate their employees to have? So I think that, like you were saying about granularity and timeline kind of repeatedly in our conversation. The, the issue isn't that we don't know what the components of the future are likely to be. We know that uh, uh, we'll probably have a lot of loose monetary policy over the next decade that will drive a lot of mergers and acquisitions. Uh, we know that there will be rising geopolitical tension between the United States and China. We know that there will likely be a pushback of the U.S. Uh, out, out of the South China Sea, possibly out of the East China Sea. Uh, we know that will drive trade tensions between the U.S. and China as they, they retake their historical territorial rights. Uh, we know that if the U.S. responds militarily that will shape the world in one way if it decides to pull back peacefully uh, it will likely put the u.s in a situation uh like uh like great britain after the fall of singapore where basically they gave up their 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 rights and control over uh of, over colonies um in in asia uh and we'll give up the United States will give up a lot of control over its rights uh, and, and preferential trade in Asia if that happens. The next question is about the, the, the maintenance of the dollar as a primary means of international trade. Uh, in a world of rising Chinese uh, power, and coming out of this with many of the small countries in the world having unbelievable debt, 
um, someone's going to need to pay that and pay the bonds. And is that going to be China or is that going to be the U.S.? And if it's China, is it going to be in dollars or is it going to be in renminbi or in yuan? That that's going to that how we end up with Bitcoin. I, that may <laughs> be the default. How, that the that better be, alternative. I, I don't know, but but it does lead to a next question, right? Of what does international trade look like in that world? Um, well, there are we, a lot of people who think we would then go back to some sort of gold standard, and that the the modern version of a gold standard might just be Bitcoin. It, it, that that's a that's a healthy possibility if the countries of the world will allow domestic trade in Bitcoin. Yeah, it, that's a huge problem when China's saying no, we're going to have digital, you know, our own digital currency, and and the U.S. eventually probably will too. I know it's a, a priority within the Fed uh, and the Treasury studying those things. Um, the next piece, which is tied to crypto, is you know, are DAOs real? Our digital autonomous organizations uh, and smart contracts, uh, you know, real things. Can you actually run a company that doesn't have, you know, centralized headquarters and command? Uh, that's going to be a 10 year question to answer. I, I think in a lot of cases, you know, not if you're trying to be an innovative organization, but if you want to be a laundromat, you know, like there's nothing about that process that we don't know that that that's a thing that could probably be organized and and highly automated so so i think many businesses uh will move toward a different type of corporate structure in the next decade that we've never seen before um, will that be a sort of a metaverse i think you and i also were discussing early on here whether the metaverse is real or whatever version we have been served up of the metaverse in in you know ver various hollywood movies plus the new company called meta and and others uh you know whether that is even close to what what it will emerge to potentially be and and, and in what time i mean are is 10 years enough to even have prototypes of something where the virtual becomes equally interesting as the physical for a great number of people. That's sort of my simplistic understanding of any kind of metaverse, whether it be consumer or industrial based. I happen to think that it's more interesting for industry than for mm -hmm. consumers at the moment, but but that could just be uh, me. If you take a look at a company like um, large energy company, I won't name one in specific. Yeah, they have these huge uh, uh, facilities and places you know, like, like Saudi Arabia, these facilities the size of cities where they've got 3D CAD uh, for those things. But they don't have, uh, you know, when they designed all the valves and everything to get all the oil from one side of this, you know, facility to the other, the city-sized facility, they didn't think they needed to, to link that data about where the thing was to the signal information that was coming from the sensors to the 3D CAD, right, 20 years ago. Like a lot of stuff like that is going to come together specifically in organizations like that. Cause they have billions of dollars of interest in the efficiency gains of linking that. But as that comes together, it's going to also filter down into our daily lives and to, to smart homes and, and, and into uh, ways of managing businesses and, and managing our workforces and, um, yeah, it's going to be critical for, you know, kind of the robotic world that um, I forget what Ali's company was, uh, the, the robot uh, delivery service uh, that, that just got spun out of, of uh, Postmates. You know, but those kinds of companies, they're going to be real and they're going to replace, you know, we were talking about aging demographics earlier. They're going to replace uh, and, and drive down the costs of all kinds of things that we couldn't have, uh, done before. Right. When you take a look at, uh, I take a look at, at having Indian food delivered to my house. Yeah. You know, there's almost a 50% markup right now, you know, on what it would cost in the restaurant to get it to my house. Well, what, what if that goes to zero? You know, what, what else does that make possible? What, what else could be delivered in an hour? You know, do I really need to have books at my house or does the library deliver them to me in 30 minutes? Yeah, you know, things you wouldn't even imagine 
suddenly become possible. And so when I think about the metaverse, it's not about what happens in Fortnite. It's about this linking of the physical in the real world. And I don't think you need to get all the way there, you know, for massive value, massive untapped value. Uh, to be unleashed for massive stocks of unnecessary materials to be unleashed, right? Like we, we were just talking about Mark Johnson's book. What, what if, you know, you could deliver that, you know, that book could be, have be at your house now. Uh, and when you were done looking at it an hour from now, it could be at my house in two hours, right? Like that, that well, would be a massive you add an shit. NFT to that. And then I get a transaction, you know, you get a yeah. fee as an author and I get yeah. a trans transportation fee or whatever yeah so yeah. there are all kinds of the, ways these, that you can move value around there's you you untap massive uh massive value and and so i i think this this is the shape of the next decade uh you know i hear a lot of people who are really concerned about climate change and specifically the the you know the, the carbon cost of bitcoin or whatever I think when you start taking a look deeper at the efficiency gains of having one book instead of two or one book instead of a hundred, you know, and, and you start applying that to all sorts of other things like buildings, you know, uh, like cars, uh, you know, you rapidly realize that we can really start to invert the carbon economy uh, in, in massive ways using these types of technologies as well. So, so you're envisioning some sort of like physicality and materiality on demand, essentially, where you can rent anything well, physical. Why, why, why 3D print when you can have it in 30 minutes anyway? Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating stuff. What I sometimes think about, Jonathan, is in all of this change, what will not change? Or what do you not want to change? And obviously, if you think too much about that, you know, you end up in not wanting to change anything. And and that's unrealistic because, you know, none of us control yeah. the levers of the future in that way. But it is also interesting in, in every decade where things have changed drastically, there are so many things that stay remarkably similar to what they were before. I, I find that an interesting thought experiment when we think about change. So the thing I'm most concerned about is when you take a look at the number of close friends that younger populations have, they're decreasing and they're decreasing. I think because the world's getting more virtual, we're spending less time together. Uh, we have more serendipity because Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever make it easy or Amazon makes it easy, but it's not earned. It's not shared, you know, and I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned that um, things like dinner parties, which were incredibly common 25 years ago, are a thing that might happen at Christmas once or twice now and with COVID not at all. I, I'm concerned that the nature of social bonds uh, are changing. And that's the human piece. I hope either gets replaced by something better uh, or personally that I hope that we don't lose and we figure out with all of this efficiency gain how to amplify our time together, how to love one another in deeper ways as opposed to how to like one another over Facebook. Well, I think you have just formulated an enormous challenge in our relatively immediate future. So I, maybe we, we, we should just end there. The uh, power of proximity is uh, not something we should lose lightly, I think. Thank you so much for, for sharing all these observations, Jonathan. It was, uh, it's been a great pleasure. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. You have just listened to episode 150 of the Futurized podcast with host Trunar Nimenheim, futurist and author. The topic was the rogue waves of change, and we talked about doing the work of a futurist from HP to Hollywood, and we talked about the ABCs of resilient growth. My takeaway is that becoming resilient as a company or an individual is not optional. It is a survival instinct. 
Yet, it takes some planning since we are not cavemen anymore and we haven't been used to it. Change is coming. In fact, transformational change is already a new fact of life. In this new world of disruption, any futurist, consultant or advisor that can help us prepare is welcome in my book. Do we need new ABCs for this stuff? Sure. Awareness, behavior change and culture change are each needed. Even then, change will surprise us. Just not that much. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 129 on how executives handle crisis, episode 52 on the future of peer-to-peer, or episode 49 on living the future of work. As always, you can go to any episode by going to futurized.org slash the number of episode. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or in any other episode. And if you do so, please message us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. And please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.